Yeah, well, good morning, church family. Thank you very much to Nick and the team for leading us in worship and for your prayer as well, Nick. It is good to be with you again today and to have the privilege to share God's word with you. My thanks to Clinton and the eldership for the opportunity. And I pray that God would be pleased to use his word in our considerations of it today for his purposes in our lives. And in so doing that, his name would be elevated. Today we will be stepping back from the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son as we've been looking at it, and today we'll be looking at another subject, and Clinton will continue looking at that parable next week, but I believe that it is really providential the way that it has fitted together, as there are several crossover themes from the parable of the prodigal son and what we will be considering today. I think it comes as no surprise that we are living in very interesting times and very troubling times from a socio-political perspective. Traditional values have been under attack for quite some time. Now, of course, these things do ebb and flow down through the centuries, but I think they seem to be under particularly heavy attack recently and perhaps in the last decade or so. Deception, backstabbing, treachery, are common in the world and in the workplace. For example, work colleagues throwing each other under the bus in order to promote their own interests. The family unit too is under attack. We see this from a number of groups and movements who are pushing their own agendas and in sometimes blatant and at other times in subtle ways, they are trying to break down what a family looks like and undermining God's good design for the family. So not only are there these political and societal pressures on families, but they experience other household pressures as well. Work takes up much of people's time, health issues, financial pressures are common where people are struggling to make ends meet, people have lost their jobs, and COVID has really exacerbated these issues. Financial pressures can lead to tension and conflict in the home. Conflict often also occurs due to relational issues. One family member disagrees with another on their approach to certain things or their choices for schooling, studies, career, their partner, religion, doctrinal stance, or even child-rearing methodologies. Children can upset their parents their behavior at home or at school can be bad or not working as hard at their studies as they could or not being obedient or disappointment from parents because their children are not following the Christian values that they were brought up with. In extended families, there can be gossip, undermining one another, even theft of money or goods. And things can be even worse where there is domestic abuse, infidelity, or even extreme violence within families. And unfortunately, if you watch the Crime and Investigation channel, you will see how many examples of this actually take place. And those are just the televised ones, never mind all the rest. As part of a 2018 report on violence against women in South Africa, which was compiled by Statistics South Africa, a survey was conducted to see the percentage of those who thought it is acceptable for a man, a husband, to hit a woman, his wife, for certain so-called wrongs. 
surprisingly, you'll notice that the response from men and women is actually quite close. So if she went out without telling him, if the wife went out without telling the husband, 6% of men surveyed thought that that justified the man hitting the woman. And 5.2% of women thought that that justified the man hitting the woman. If the woman neglected the children, 7.6% of men surveyed thought that that justified the man hitting the woman. And 6.5% of women thought that that was a justification. If the woman argued with the man, 7.7% of men thought that that justified hitting the woman. And the percentage was 6.8% for women who responded. Seemingly, though, burning the food is considered a relatively minor offense, with both 1.3% of men and women agreeing that that was a justifiable reason for a man to strike a woman. So people in these aforementioned situations will often find themselves feeling a deep sense of betrayal at the deception or treachery that they have experienced, however it has manifested itself. And this is particularly difficult in a home, a place normally thought of as being warm, accepting, close, and caring. A home, family, is supposed to be filled with love, happiness, security, and support. We always assume this, even in the church. We see people week after week, and we assume that all families are doing well, no major issues. But this is often not the case, and we can miss the fact that people and families are struggling through some major issues and are working through betrayal, treachery, and deception of different types. So today we will be considering how to overcome treachery. And when we say treachery, we are referring to deception, or the betrayal of trust. Now, the principles that we will consider can be applied to all types of treachery and betrayal, such as in your general dealings in the world, or in the workplace, or relationships with friends. But we will be largely focused in our considerations and applications within the family context of those with whom we are closest. And we will be looking at both preventative measures that seek to prevent the treachery from happening in the first place, and also retrospective measures and ways to respond to betrayal or treachery. And in order to do this, we'll be looking at the life of Joseph, which is described in Genesis chapter 37 through to chapter 50. And we'll be looking at a couple of selective passages and see some of the different principles that we can glean from them. Now, many of these were highlighted for me in an RBC ministry study on Joseph as part of their discovery series. And I was really impacted by that study as it touched on areas that I'd really not considered previously. And so given where we are with everything going on in the world, in society and families, I thought it would be beneficial and challenging for us. So you can turn to Genesis chapter 37 so long, but before we look at Joseph, let's remind ourselves a bit about his father, Jacob, also known as Israel. And this will prove to be really important because it will help us to understand Joseph's upbringing and his early family situation. And will give us a lot of insight into some of those preventative measures that I alluded to earlier of how we can prevent such treachery from happening in the first place. So Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, the brother of Esau, 
and he is generally believed to have been a deceiver and is commonly referred to as such by commentators. And this is seen in various ways. One such way is where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. We see in Genesis chapter 25, verse 29 to 34, that Jacob is a schemer, and he looks for opportunities to take advantage of others, as he does in this situation, where he takes advantage of Esau and gets him to sell his birthright in exchange for a bowl of stew. Now, Esau is perhaps primarily to blame here, and he is chastised for his unholy behavior late in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. However, the scheming of Jacob can be well seen. Another time we see his deceptive nature in Genesis 27. While colluding with his mother Rebekah, Jacob seeks to receive the blessing from his father Isaac. And they hatch the well-known plan to deceive the aging Isaac, putting the animal skins on Jacob's hands and his neck to make it seem that he is hairy like his brother Esau. And Jacob lies directly to his father, saying that he is in fact Esau and then goes on to receive the blessing from his father. And in so doing, he pushes the conflict with his brother to new levels. Now, there are some that argue that there is nothing wrong with Jacob's actions, that the deception was well-motivated and well-meaning, attempting to ultimately fulfill God's prophecy and plan, which God spoke to Rebekah in Genesis 25, verse 23, where God said that the older son would serve the younger. However, the majority of comments on Jacob do not see his actions as righteous deception, but rather see him as a liar and a deceiver, someone God chooses to use and to work into his grand plan despite those sins. Then in Genesis 29, we see that Jacob takes two wives, Leah, whom he was tricked into marrying, and Rachel, whom he really loved. And then in chapter 30, we see that he takes a further two wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, who are Rachel and Leah's servants. And he bore sons by all four of his wives. Leah had seven children as far as we know, six sons and a daughter. Rachel had two sons, and Bilhah and Zilpah also each had two sons as well. Now Joseph was Jacob's 12th child and the 11th son, with Rachel being his mother. And he was followed finally by Benjamin, the youngest, who was also through Rachel. And she actually died giving birth to Benjamin. So having looked at something of Joseph's family history, I would like us now to read from Genesis 37. So I will be reading from the ESV. Genesis 37 from verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his, father, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, 
Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we saw a moment ago that Joseph's father, Jacob, was a schemer and a deceiver, at least in his earlier years. And we also saw that he entered into polygamy. And while it may have been common practice at the time, and he was tricked into marrying the wrong woman. We know that polygamy is not a practice that God approves of. The pattern of one man and one woman is laid down already in Genesis chapter 2. And now we start to see the results of these actions. 
the harvest is being reaped for those choices. There is a mixed family of 12 sons, all vying for position with their father. And Jacob also shows a clear preference for his sons by his wife, Rachel, whom he ultimately loved and wanted to marry, and who had borne his last two sons when God opened Rachel's womb, sons he had in his old age, sons of his now dearly beloved deceased wife. His sons by Leah and his two concubines did not endear themselves to Jacob by their actions either, dishonoring their father at various times and in various ways. So his heart is clearly drawn to Joseph and Benjamin, and he allows that favoritism to take root and to shine through. He elevates Joseph and Benjamin above the other brothers, and he takes it a step further with Joseph. Genesis 37 verse 3, we saw, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. Now, Joseph clearly senses this, and he does not have a stellar relationship with his brothers, and he reports to his father how his brothers slander him. Genesis 37 verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So whether he was being a tattletale or spying on behalf of Jacob or just bringing an honest report of slander is not quite clear. And commentators seem to have varied views on this. But look further at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So these sons are learning at the foot of their father, himself a deceiver and a schemer. These sons are learning the same traits, it seems. And all this favoritism is creating friction within the family. It is riddled with strife, deception, self-interest, betrayal, and treachery. And I wonder if Jacob had ever considered how the decisions he had taken decades earlier had led to the family situation that had emerged. So let's take a look at a couple of key contributors to treachery and how we can avoid them in our own lives. So firstly, our sin filters down to impact others, especially our children. So I think we need to understand that sin has the potential to filter down through our actions to others and even down through the generations as ideas and behaviors are viewed and then copied by children. And so identifying sin early and making sure it never happens in the first place, we can potentially overcome treachery by preventing it. And so I think this is a major point for personal reflection. Perhaps I can start by talking to parents. Have you ever considered how your behavior impacts your young children? Perhaps as husband and wife, you fight a lot. Or perhaps you are distant and cold, wrapped up in your work. You complain a lot about others, gossip about them or run them down. Are you being deceptive in your business dealings or talking about ways to circumvent taxes? Are you showing favoritism toward one child or another? Perhaps it is a taboo subject because people always assume you will just treat your children the same. Your children will be listening and picking up on all these things. 
this kind of slander, deception, and scheming, favoritism. And it's going to become part of their thinking and their mindset, even at a young age. In those early years of their lives, they are forming so much of the foundation of how they think and their approach to life. You can ask any foundation phase teacher, and they will tell you when they meet the parents at parents' evening, they understand why the child behaves the way that they do. Perhaps you need to do some thinking and identify where these behaviors may be present and pray to God, asking that he will help you to overcome these sins, that you can instill a positive legacy for your children and for your family. Talking specifically to fathers now, as the head of your home, consider the lesson from Jacob. Is your life above reproach? You do not want your anger, your sexual immorality, or betrayal, or deception to be passed down to your sons or daughters. Are you modeling Christ for them? Now, of course, we know that sometimes, despite our best efforts as parents, children still go down a bad path, and I, and I'm sure many of you have heard of many such cases, which causes parents great pain. So we understand that that does happen. But so far as it depends on you, prepare now, make changes now, so that treachery does not find root in your family. You don't want to end up like this excerpt from a will, which is dated the 1st of July, 1935, which reads, and to my two daughters, Francis Marie and Denise Victoria, by reason of their unloving attitudes toward her doting father, I leave the sum of one dollar each and a father's curse. May their respective lives be filled with misery, unhappiness, and sorrow. May their debts be soon and of a lingering, torturous nature. Ace. Speaking to children, to siblings, don't let poor choices when you're younger or even potentially later on in life, set the course for a life of strife and division between yourself and your parents, or between yourself and a sibling. Don't let envy or covetousness or non-core differences of opinion put a wedge between you. You may not be able to recover that relationship in the years going forward. We see in Genesis chapter 42, verse 22, that the brothers actually never escaped their personal guilt for what they had done to Joseph and how they had lied to their father, even so many years later. And I think that these same principles can apply within the context of your friendships as well. So be very careful to not allow such sin to enter in. There is the caveat that differences in certain core Christian principles may send you in different directions from others. But so far as it depends on you, you should be blameless before God and before others from a treachery perspective. Now, when we do this kind of spiritual self-evaluation, I think we need to be meticulous and consider even the subtleties of our behavior to see if there is an underlying sin issue there. Because even the small things that we do can have a magnified impact downstream. We might think little of a small comment here or there, a word spoken in jest or sarcasm that can really blow up in someone else's mind, a friend or a family member. 
children might latch onto something which you have said, which you thought was a small thing, but they then consider it normal and start to incorporate it into their everyday pattern of life and speech. So I think we need to be very sensitive to these things. The next contributor to treachery is that our unchecked sin always snowballs into greater devastation. If we look at the way Joseph's family life developed, that we can see something of a snowball effect where sin continued upon sin and grew and grew to create this untenable family situation. If there had been earlier intervention, then perhaps significant pain could have been avoided. And I think this is another point of application for us to consider. Don't overlook issues in your relationship with your spouse, siblings, and or friends, or deny that they exist, even if you think they are small. Otherwise, they have the potential to grow and fester. Small argument here, some deception there, a sprinkling of backstabbing, left unchecked and unaddressed, these things can fester in your relationships. At each family gathering, another little comment is made. And like a blister, each comment is going to scratch at that wound until it is open and infected. Now, this is not going to be easy. The reason we often don't deal with these things early is because they are hard to bring up. But the alternative is much worse. Now, of course, we don't want to be petty, but where there are legitimate issues, trust God to give you the grace to deal with these things early. Let's move on now and consider the infamous multicolored coat of Joseph, as well as his dreams, as we look at Joseph's early response to the situation. Remember, Joseph is a young man. He's around 17 years old, the second last son. In Genesis 37, verse 3, we saw it said, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, in looking at this verse, it seems like Jacob gave Joseph a special gift. And at face value, seems like nothing wrong with that. If it hadn't been for the heart behind that, which was the favoritism he was showing. Now, there is another potential angle to this, which some commentators mention, which is uh, quite an interesting possibility. And they suggest that the Hebrew word, which is translated as many colors, is perhaps better translated as ankles or wrists. So rather than meaning richly ornamented, the meaning is more literal, and the coat actually extended to the wrists and ankles. So most robes or tunics were short-sleeved and stopped at the knees, suitable for working men. But long tunics were for those who did not have to do hard labor, such as managers. So the suggestion is that because the firstborn Reuben dishonored his father, as seen in Genesis 35, verse 22, that Jacob decides to make Joseph his heir, and allocate the birthright to him. The long-sleeved tunic would then affirm that he sits over his brothers as their manager. And this may also fit with what we see in John chapter 4, verse 5, which tells us of Jesus coming to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And according to Genesis 33, verse 19, this was the only plot of land that we know that Jacob owned. And if he gave it to Joseph, it may have been as his inheritance as the heir. So if this was the case, then it would have been an interesting turn of events. Jacob deceptively taking his birthright and blessing from Esau, 
And now he shifts the birthright from Reuben to Joseph. This would have made Joseph's brothers all the more angry. As not only is Joseph more beloved by their father, but now one of the youngest is put in position above them. So whatever the exact nature of the meaning of the, of the robe, it sent a very definite signal to Joseph's brothers that he was better than them. And this leads us to the third contributing factor to treachery in Joseph's family. And that is our sin of pride derails our usefulness for God. So in Genesis 37, 5 to 11, we hear of two of Joseph's dreams in which the figurative events depict his brothers and family bowing down to him. And even Jacob rebukes his favorite son when he hears of the second dream. Now Joseph must have known the family situation around him, yet he openly and almost brashly shares these dreams with his brother and father. There are three things that I think this shows about Joseph. So firstly, he was indiscriminate. He didn't recognize the family situation. Secondly, he was insensitive. He didn't consider the impact of his actions on the family. And thirdly, he was immature. He didn't consider the hurt his actions would cause. So he was indiscriminate, insensitive, and immature. Joseph needed to learn discernment, and he would learn this through being a servant. So while it is true that one day he would exercise dominion over his brothers, his actions show that he was not quite ready for that job yet. He needed to be prepared for the responsibility of leadership. And it would be a hard path. As we know, he went on to be a slave in Egypt under Potiphar. But he would come to learn servant leadership and show discernment, sensitivity, and maturity. And so such traits will help prevent and still the storm of treachery. And I think this is a, le a necessary lesson for all of us in the home, between husbands and wives, between parents and their children, between siblings, relatives, for leaders in the church, and for supervisors with employees. So is this true of you? Are you being a servant leader in your context? I've seen the question posed, are you using your position or are you allowing God to use you in it? Are you using your position to advance your own interests, your ambitions, your desires for power, dominion, recognition? Or are you allowing God to use you as a peacemaker? Someone who creates an environment where treachery is foreign place that brings discernment, sensitivity, and maturity, and a place of healing for those who have faced betrayal. And let's take another example. Say you have felt betrayed within a ministry context. It can be very hard to move beyond that. And our response, and it is understandable, is that we want to withdraw from that particular ministry because we have been hurt by others. In a church context, which is supposed to be like a family, a safe place. So despite the betrayal and deception that Joseph faced from his own brother selling him into slavery, and then from Potiphar's wife, 
despite all he did for Potiphar's household, and then later being forgotten by the cupbearer, Joseph persevered in his obedience, his hard work, and his servanthood. As we see in Genesis 39, verse 3 to 5, and Genesis 41, verse 46, amongst others. And this was part of the way that God grew him. So may I encourage you, continue working hard in ministry, even when feeling betrayed or let down. It may be difficult, but again, pray that God might give you the strength to forge on. So, so far, our first three points have focused on how we can identify and overcome the sin of treachery in our own hearts and in our attitudes towards others. And now, in the final place, let's look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 to 21. You can turn there, where we will see the ultimate key to overcoming the treachery of others towards us when we are the victim like Joseph was. And so fourthly then, our submission to God's sovereignty always results in kingdom impact. So let's read that Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 to 21. It's right at the end of the story now. Jacob has just died, and it's just before they talk about Joseph's own death. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So in Genesis 50 verse 18, which we've just read, Joseph's brothers bow down before him and offer themselves as his servants, ultimately fulfilling Joseph's dreams during childhood. And look at Joseph's response in verse 19. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He says, I am not God. I am not sovereign. I am not your judge. We see that he shows such kindness and grace towards his brothers. He has now learned that sensitivity and discernment over his years in Egypt. He is not focusing on their sin and how they wronged him. And I think that this is a great lesson for us. So often when we have experienced treachery, we focus heavily on the other person and how they have wronged us and we feel really bitter about that. But Joseph does not do that. And I think it reminds us that it is an opportunity for us to be looking inward and saying, what can I learn about myself through this situation and how I need to change? Perhaps I've actually brought this on myself or contributed to these issues. Perhaps I antagonize the other person. Where there are areas glaring or subtle that I can change so that this does not happen again. And how can I now approach this person in a sensitive way to remediate the situation and to restore the relationship? 
and pray that God would illuminate these things to you. We also see how Joseph acknowledges and submits to God's sovereignty. He says, I am not God. And in verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he acknowledges that God is both sovereign and good. So we must realize that these trials of treachery will come. We can't deny that. We should not be surprised or be angry with God. Recognize that this is allowed of God, a learning experience meant for good. Be aware, prepare your heart and mind ahead of time so that when these situations arise, you can respond in a God-honoring way. God is good. Look how he worked such a terrible situation in Joseph's life for incredible good. The victim of human trafficking through whom God worked to save many people. Reminds us of Christ, doesn't it? Out of the seemingly greatest tragedy of his death came the most incredible result of redemption to save many people. And so we see that Jesus is the perfect Joseph. Jesus, God incarnate, who understands us, ultimately suffered the worst treachery ever known. The righteous son of God was betrayed, falsely tried, and sentenced and put to death by crucifixion. Listen to Matthew 26, 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Judas betrayed Jesus in the most terrible way. Then in Matthew 26, verse 56, we learn that all the disciples fled. They deserted him. Later, when Jesus is brought before Caiaphas and the council, false witnesses are brought against him. Then in Matthew 26, verse 17, Peter denies Jesus, says he has no connection to him, never knew the man. So people in the community, people in the synagogue, and perhaps most painfully, those closest to Jesus, they all completely betray him. And worse than being thrown in a well or sold to slave traders, he is beaten and crucified. There is no truer a victim of treachery than Jesus. Yet this was exactly God's sovereign purpose for him. Joseph said in Genesis 50:20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He ultimately came to understand that the treachery he experienced was part of God's sovereign plan and he learned to submit to it. And Joseph is a shadow pointing us to the ultimate reality of the gospel in Jesus. Peter makes this point in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, and also verse 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
So as Joseph submitted to God's will, he went on to accomplish the saving of many lives as God worked through him to wisely manage Egypt through, through first abundance and then the ensuing drought. Jesus, through his submission to the Father, went on to purchase something greater than physical life. He went on to purchase eternal salvation for many lives. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 38 to 40, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So friends, perhaps you sometimes feel like no one understands the treachery you have faced. Perhaps you feel alone even now, abandoned by everyone you know. But take heart, Jesus understands. Put your faith and your hope in him. Trust his will, trust his purposes for you, submit to him. He has all the grace you need to persevere and overcome the treachery. Listen to these short passages from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one to three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So having looked at the life of Joseph and his family history, we have seen a lot of what not to do in with dealing treachery. And we have been given several lessons of how we can approach and overcome treachery. Perhaps there is a family member, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend or work colleague that you need to approach in the coming days to start working towards overcoming treachery, whether you believe you are the cause or not. Maybe a long journey, but perhaps that journey starts this week. There is so much in the story of Joseph, and we have only touched on certain parts this morning. So please go read the full story for yourself. Examine it further. See what other insights and applications you can find. Maybe read more of the story with your children or your grandchildren. Ask them to identify the times when people are kind or unkind, when they responded in a way that they think would have made God feel happy, and when the people responded in a way that would have made him feel sad. When they think Joseph worked really hard, or to identify wonderful things that Joseph said about God. Maybe talk about someone at school or in their class who has hurt them and teach them to use one of today's lessons to help them. So I close with an excerpt from a commentary by James Boyce. And looking in the section about Joseph of how God is working for the good of those who love him, he refers to Elizabeth Elliot who saw numerous setbacks in her early years as a missionary and then endured the loss of two husbands 
one murdered by Orca Indians and a second slowly lost to cancer. Reflecting on these experiences, she wrote, the experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you, you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. And then the commentator interjects, but this is not how a Christian judges things by sight, not at all. Elizabeth continues, my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your lessons to us in the life of Joseph. Grant that we would be submissive to your will and purposes, that we may overcome treachery in our lives and be fruitful servants to our God. Encourage those today who feel burdened and heavy laden under the yoke of treachery. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are so familiar with our sufferings, familiar with the troubles and treachery we face in this world. Help us to draw on all the grace you provide that we can follow in your footsteps and overcome. In Jesus' name, amen.